Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Lisa Dale Miller is an integrative psychotherapist who uses somatic experience therapy to help people deal with trauma, handle internal and external stressors, and learn to become awake and present. She's also the author of Effortless Mindfulness, an academic textbook positioning the clinical work she practices in the context of traditional Western psychotherapy. In this episode, Lisa will tell us why engineers are some of her favorite clients, how her years of mindfulness practice and study have informed the work she does today, and what prompted her to change careers and become a trained psychotherapist after 25 years as a pioneering installation artist. So today I'm speaking with Lisa Dale Miller, and she is an integrative psychotherapist and somatic experiencing practitioner. And she's also the author of Effortless Mindfulness, a book on genuine mental health through awakened presence. Lisa, how are you doing today? Great. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to meet you and, and to talk to you a little bit about your approach to psychotherapy and also how you, how you got there. Can you tell us a little bit about your practice these days? Well, I'm very fortunate. I have been practicing in Silicon Valley for many years now, and that means I get to work with a lot of engineers, which I actually love. They tend to be skeptical and thoughtful, very inquisitive. Sometimes they're more readily open to trying things because they like results. And one of the things I love about engineers is they don't need the perfect conditions in order to make great things happen. That's interesting. How do you mean? Well, I remember many years ago when I first moved to Silicon Valley, I was married at the time and my husband was the founder of an EDA startup. One of the first things that we did, we only had 10 engineers in the company at the time and there were no other support staff. So I sort of stepped in and I guess I was the HR, quote unquote. I kind of did everything that needed to be done for free because at the time I, I was a pretty well-known visual artist, but I wanted to offer my assistance to my husband and his partner and his company. Anyway, so we would do fun things with our engineers. And I remember one of the things that they did was they just gave the engineers a bunch of random objects and said, we want you to build something that can fly by the end of the day. And I looked at this random group of objects and I thought, how in the world are they going to do this? And sure enough, the teams, these two teams ended up creating something that actually flew across the room. That is amazing. I love exercises like that. And they really, they really spark the creativity. So I just find that in psychotherapy, engineers tend to come with that same open-mindedness and skepticism, which I love because the methods that I use tend to be scientific, but they also are personal the dynamism of your own mind, your own nervous system, your own physical, mental, emotional system is something that with awareness, you, people can actually work with directly. And engineers love that. 
Now, can you tell us a little bit about your modality? Because I, I think you have a unique approach to the way that you practice. Integrative psychotherapy, like integrative medicine, means that unlike the last 100, 200 years of psychology, which only thought there was a mind and a brain. In fact, there is a physical body, there is a nervous <laughs> system, and there is a surround in which the system actually functions. And that's not just a relational surround, but it's the relationality of the entire environment in which a person grows up in, as well as in which a person functions in the here and the now. And all of that is an available container for awakening. And awakening being the, the goal of your therapy? So I would say awakening is probably the goal of human existence. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning there is a way to land in the embodied reality in which we actually inhabit, devoid of the distortions in which our narrative about that reality can get in the way of knowing things the way they actually are. And those distortions can come from all kinds of sources, and this is the integrative method. They can come from genetic distortions, they could come from distortions that have to do with environmental factors. Many of the engineers I work with grow up in adverse childhood environments and have experienced quite a lot of childhood trauma. So even though they are brilliant engineers, they are often dealing with chronic depressive disorders, chronic anxiety disorders. and. In the years that I have been practicing, it's become really apparent to me that much of the symptoms that people suffer with are actually systemic dysregulations. And those dysregulations can be dealt with on many levels. When you use the term systemic dysregulations, can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. So as you probably know, the physical body is a very complex system. Mm -hmm. And it is continually delivering information from its environment and also from the internal organs themselves up to the brain. So these days, people are very brain-centered. <laughs> they, they think everything has to do with neurons. But there, is an in, there are 90 billion neurons in what's called the enteric nervous system, which is the gut and the 10th cranial nerve, the dorsal vagal and ventral vagal system. That 10th cranial nerve has inputs into every one of the internal organs and it's continually delivering information up in through the brainstem to the brain about what's actually happening in the body. So the body is always responding to its environment. And of course we have the peripheral nervous system in order to do proprioception so that we can navigate our world. The skill of proprioception along with the skill of interoception, which is the capacity for the mind to be able to be turned in toward bodily functioning, to have real-time input from the system itself in awareness, to know what's actually happening in the body is extremely important for healing depressive disorders and anxiety disorders because often that system of communication has been somehow compromised because of traumatic shock in the system and childhood trauma. It sounds like it's a very deep thing to try to get to, though. Uh, I'm, I'm curious how you approach it. Actually, it isn't. The most amazing thing is that the organism is wanting awareness with it every moment. It wants us there. But for the most part, 
our self-awareness is not there. We, you know, our world is, we, we walk through our world as modern beings, mostly disconnected from our physical functioning. I think we're encouraged to do that too. I think I'm going to agree with you. I am. And most of our attentiveness is outward, but not outward toward a sense of connectivity. It's outward in sort of a, I would say, master over subject relationship. <laughs> I, sometimes I say to my patients, the reality that we're continually constructing about experience is often very distorted. The mind is a fantastic virtual reality machine, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And there's a, a lot of scientific debate about whether or not we live in virtual reality right now. Well, you know, the truth is we are, as human beings, we have a biological system that is wired up to deliver a particular view of the way things are so that we can navigate it. But the actuality of the way things are is not what we see. The actuality is, is it's completely independent of our perceptions. Exactly. Everything is occurring and we have a brain that constructs a perceptual view of what is occurring so we can navigate it. Now, I understand what you're talking about there, but it's kind of a difficult concept to explain to some people. It is because people think that the way they see and the story they tell themselves about the world is actually true. How do you get that across to people? It's pretty easy, actually. So think about the last time you had an experience that before you had it, maybe you had some trepidation about it, and maybe you were scenario making in your mind about how it was going to go. Now, let me ask you a question. When it actually happened, and this is something that maybe you were concerned about, did the experience show up in a completely different way than you thought it was going to show up? Every single time. There we go. <laughs> That's all I have to do. And, you know, people with anxiety disorders, the disorder itself is an over-attentiveness to a constructive narrative that they're continually spinning about what is going to happen. That is a reality that is not existing in the here and now. What's existing in their here and now, more often than not, is just a world that is beneficent in that moment. Yet, they are very busy attending to a reality that is fearful and con usually constructive of failure. Now, this awareness that you're talking about, this, this sounds to me like something that comes out of your mindfulness practice or that might be informed by your mindfulness practice. I could say yes and I could say no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I say that is because I, I've interviewed a number of people who practice mindfulness. I've practiced mindfulness myself for a number of years. Yes. And the, the teachings of mindfulness are often about being present to the moment as it exists right now for yourself and letting go of attachment to the outcomes in the future and the associations with the past. That was well said. And that is the party line of clinical mindfulness and mindfulness as it is mostly delivered in settings that are colloquial. Okay. The reality is we never experience the present moment <laughs> because it's always over. What's happened, the mind, the conscious awareness mind is 3.5 milliseconds behind what the body's already experienced in the unconscious. That's the work of Benjamin Libet, the great neuroscientist out of UCSF. So we're always experiencing what already happened in the body already. 
For me, awareness is about a level of complexity and depth and embodiment, that the self-awareness is so fully engaged in the experience of moving through the world, being in a body in the world. It is fully landed without any kind of destruction or distress. Even in a distressing moment, you can still be doing this because the body is the refuge, because the body knows its world. So there's a branch of neuroscience, which is relatively new. It's called 4E Cognition. And I encourage all of your listeners to go do a little Googling on 4E Cognition. Is that like the number four and then the letter E? Yes, it is. And what it means is that this branch of neuroscience recognizes that there isn't just a brain inside of a head, that cognition actually occurs in the body and in the environment, that it is a partnering of an experience and the four E's are embodied, inactive, embedded, and extended. So the key here is that awareness itself occurs because the full system, the brain as well as the nervous system and the body, are embedded in the world. That's proprioception. I wouldn't be able to be sitting in this chair right now if my body didn't know the chair as well as it knows itself. The body is a non, this is a non-conceptual, non-dual experience. Non-conceptual, non-dual experience. Yes, the body knows the boundary of its skin, but it equally knows simultaneously the surround in which it is in. It has to, otherwise we wouldn't be able to move through our world. The body knows no separation between itself and the world. It knows its boundary, but it doesn't think of itself as something other than something in its world. The experience is one that some people would call oneness, but I don't like the word oneness. It does, it's just, it's too amorphous for me. So it's embedded in its experience, it's extended out by way of being able to feel into the surround, and it's inactive. And this is mental health, honestly. So when you use the term inactive, that's with an E, right? Yes, it's with an E, inactive. That's the four E's, embodied, extended, embedded, and inactive. Right, when you said that, my mind immediately thought of inactive rather than inactive, because inactive isn't a term that I think a lot of people are familiar with. No, this is com- these are new terms for most people, but think how beautiful this is. This is a vision of collectivity and connectivity that we so need in our world right now. And frankly, it goes way beyond mindfulness, because it is the ultimate mindfulness. It is an embodied awareness that is fully in the world with no hesitation. The body has no existential doubt about its existence. People who suffer with depressive disorders and anxiety disorders are lost in existential doubt about their existence. And that's because they are completely separated out from this integrative, integral experience of being a human being in this world. And this world is very beautiful. It's ordinary, but its ordinariness is very beautiful. We are tuned to that ordinariness. That's what makes it beautiful for us. That's right. We're naturally attuned. Yes, David, that's exactly right. The body is already tuned to that channel. I'm really curious, how does this work out in in the, the type of work that you do? Well, the beautiful part of somatic experiencing therapy is it is a set of skills and a roadmap for people to actually be able to use the skill you mentioned, which is mindfulness, that 
capacity of awareness to be turned like a flashlight to anything and then landed in the experience, resting in the experience, allowing the awareness to become not just a separate observer, because that is a very bad way of thinking of mindfulness, but really embodying the experience that the system is already having. Without this distracted narrative that's continually trying to construct the way things are, and it's always distorted, and that's always wrong. And by the way, this has nothing to do with the functions of mind that engineers and scientists and philosophers and artists use in order to cogitate about their experience. Cogitation is fine. Problem solving is fine. So this is independent of that. That's right. This is not the same as the self-distorted self-narratives that we're continually spinning about who we are or are not in this world. This is fascinating. So when you're doing a session with somebody, does it involve physical interaction? Does it involve conversation? I'm curious what this looks like. So SE has two modalities. By the way, it's a three-year clinical training. Okay. (laughs) Because what we're doing as clinicians, you have to be taught to read the nervous system and to read nervous system responses when you're actually looking at a person. Mm But the method itself, we act as a self-applied method. So we are actually seeing certain things that are happening, reactivity in the physical, mental, and emotional system. We can actually see that occurring. And then we just draw the patient's attention to the experience and have them be able to experience it directly in their own system. And the great thing about working at an organismic level is the physical body is wired up for homeostasis. So homeostasis is the body's capacity for balance, that the body always wants balance. A a great example is when people ingest alcohol, alcohol is a GABA deliverer. It floods the brain with GABA. And GABA basically, the brain already has receptors for it, which means we already actually create GABA in the brain. And what it does is it relaxes us. But when you flood the body with GABA, Too much GABA relaxes the system too much and you get sloppy. You know what happens when you drink too much. You can't think so well. Your speech becomes sloppy. You can't navigate the world. I mean, everything just sort of goes off. And the body goes, too much GABA, I'm going to start creating glutamate. It starts throwing the chemical glutamate at the problem. And that's why people end up with hangovers. Because glutamate is a stress chemical and it feels terrible, but that's what the body needs to do. So this is an example, it's a it's sort of a crude example, but it's an example of how all day long the organism is completely regulating itself. If there's a problem over here, the body knows how to fix its own dysregulation. And this is true of the nervous system. The problem is, often, the mind is off somewhere generating anxiety, it's generating stress, it's going through all kinds of mental activity that is actually throwing the physical system into all kinds of states that it shouldn't be in. It's almost like there's a tiger in front of you all the time. Or in turn, with people who have depressive disorders, their systems are collapsed. They're basically in sort of dorsal vagal freeze states chronically. And we won't go into why that happens. But essentially, people who have 
a lot of childhood trauma, the nervous system ends up developing a strategy for work going through the world, which either looks like a lot of hypervigilance or collapse into free states. And the SE methodology is a way for an individual to be able to experience that kind of dysregulated functioning of the nervous system, triggering when something, a thought comes up, triggering when there's certain experience in the environment. And the awareness itself, just partnering with the body, when the awareness can be just there as a witness, resting in the experience, the body is able to do its own organismic healing. It can unwind the trauma response itself. It doesn't need the master controller of this self thinking, I know how to make this get fixed. No, the body is much more intelligent than our little egoic narrative is. I hear the contrast between a holistic approach and sort of a Western medicine approach with targeted medications that might be directed at balancing the neurochemicals in order to adjust for situations like that. That is true. And then I can also say that when people have severe chronic dysregulation, often psychotropic medication is actually very useful to be able to get the system to a level where it can actually start to do some work. So many of the people I work with are working with psychiatrists that I trust who have an integrative view who may be giving them some form of psychotropic medication that actually helps the person to be able to do the work. I have a lot of psychiatrists who over the years have started to send me their patients to get them off of drugs like Ativan and things like this, which it turns out those medications, not only are they not really great in the long term for anxiety disorders, I mean, they're CNS relaxants. They basically just relax the central nervous system and meditation and yoga, Qigong, Tai Chi, all these things are nervous system relaxants. So. If a person is willing to do something like that, it's much better than popping an Ativan. If somebody's having a panic attack and they know how to do this, they can just shift their awareness. I mean, you could do it right now. If you just land your awareness, and anybody who's listening can do this, if you just allow your awareness to land in your eyes. So let your eyes be free. In other words, let your eyeballs be free and let them roam around the room where you are. So just go, just let them roam. But wherever they go, allow yourself to really see. Just rest in the actual act of seeing. And just let your eyes roam. If you find they get fixated on something, now you can allow them to move. And if you land on something interesting or beautiful, you can hang out with it. That's okay. So what are you noticing as you let your eyes roam around? What are you seeing out there? I'm enjoying the experience of fixating and I'm appreciating the shapes. The shapes, yes. And now, just let your awareness land on your body for a moment and just notice the condition of your system. And what would you say just in general you're noticing? Relaxed, a few areas of tension. So somebody who's having a panic attack or having an anxiety attack of some kind, some kind of upset or distress of any kind. If they land their awareness in their eyes and they allow the eyes to kind of roam and just see, what happens is the body immediately calms down because the mind is now here with bodily experience. There is no tiger in the room. There is no threat. 
the threat was being generated by some kind of fixational set of thoughts that the mind was lost in about something that wasn't actually happening that they were imagining might happen or possibly ruminating about something that did happen like for instance people who have PTSD often the mind goes towards something that did happen and it throws the body into that stress response so landing the awareness where the body actually is and for the most part in the modern world you know unless you live in a war zone or a really terrible neighborhood or you have a very destructive family environment occurring or you have a work environment that is very stressful for the most part you're landing in a world that's fairly safe and benign at least at the moment at least at the moment Yes, and that's one of the reasons why I love doing this work because, ah, you know, psychotherapy, unfortunately, has been very much about individual healing. And my sense is our world needs to have more connectivity and more collectivity. And, of course, I'm a very big fan of the Internet and all of the capacities for global connection that it gives us, but I also feel that it has afforded us more capacity to be on the sideline, to feel like those things aren't really happening to us. Do you encourage your, your patients to work with the community rather than work just inside of themselves? Yes, because my work is about mental and physical and emotional well-being. And when you are not lost in yourself, when you are somehow purposefully engaging in the world, that's when people feel best. I can really feel that when you say it. It kind of brings me back to, to you and how you got to where you are, because I, I believe you mentioned earlier, you, uh, you used to be an artist and you had a transition in your life. I did. Yes, I was trained to be in the New York art world. I did show my work for about 25 years in museums and galleries around the world. And I worked in many, many varied mediums, but pretty much everything I did was to allow people to do one of two things, to either be able to introspect about who they were or to be able to connect with a piece that would allow them to have more awareness of being a human being in society. Mm, I love the concept. It's abstract. I would appreciate it if you could tell us a little bit about some of the work that you did. I was one of the first people to create installations that existed on the internet and in real space at the same time. Uh huh. And that was back in the days when all we had was animated GIFs. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did one of the first televised live performance pieces on the internet. So, for instance, one of the shows that I did here in Silicon Valley, actually, after I had lived here, I guess five, six years, people started to tell me about the way the valley used to be. Turned out it was the most fertile earth pretty much in the United States, and it was almost all cherry trees and all kinds of orchards. And so, and this was, I don't know if you remember the bubble in 2000. I do. I was living in Silicon Valley in San Francisco at the time. Well, I was living up in the Los Gatos Mountains, and it was so bad, I remember, you could not leave the house until 10 o'clock in the morning because it was impossible to get down 17. 
that's how bad the traffic was. And people were up in arms about housing prices and this and that. So I did an installation that existed in a museum here in Silicon Valley. And it was five prune trees, which actually had been taken out of the Saratoga orchards because they were 55 years old and coming to the end of their life. So they were installed in the museum in a circle with TV monitors at their bases. And I created a series of videos that came from interviews with the last remaining orchard families in Silicon Valley, interviews with some of the Superfund site lawyers about, well, at that time, Silicon Valley still had some of the worst Superfund sites in the United States. And then I had built a website, and this was in 2000, so the tools were not great. I'd built a website where people could call in and they could tell their orchard stories, or they could type them in, or they could send in photographs. And I built a surround in the space where when you walk through, you heard the stories that were told over the phone into the website <laughs> from people who grew up here during the time when there were orchards and what they remembered. That's the kind of work that I did, and people would come and they would actually interact with the piece. They would put things up on the site or they would write things down. Fascinating. By the time I arrived in Silicon Valley, all the orchards were gone, and all that was left was the names of the orchards were being used for the housing complexes that were being built. <laughs> I did an interview with a guy whose family owned the land that Memorex was on. And he told the whole story of what it was like when he was growing up and then how, you know, the family sold the land to Memorex and all the different neighborhoods, how they popped up. So interesting, the way the valley changed in those years. Yeah, it's very difficult to build a successful career as an artist. Would you call yourself a conceptual artist? No, conceptual, I, I had many friends who were conceptual artists. Because I used so many different mediums, I also made paintings for my shows, and I did all kinds of things. I would say more that I was a political, social, and spiritual artist. I was very interested in people waking up, just like I am now. <laughs> this is a continuation of your career. It's just another method, it's another medium for me to allow people to know more about their essence. What else is there in the world? What else is there in the world? So at some point, you had your training, you had your art career, 25 years working in that, and you realized that there was something different that you wanted to do. And it was clearly a large investment of time and a commitment in terms of the three years of clinical study, for example. Yes. And I will not tell this story because people can go listen to my interview with Guy McPherson. It's on my website about Kosovo. But I was, I was asked in 2000, shortly before I did that, the piece that I just described, so this is like eight months before I did this other installation, I was asked to go to Kosovo when the war ended and bring drums. I'm also a musician and bring, I'm a Middle Eastern frame drummer, bring drums to the kids in the worst burned out villages. They're called Category 5 villages and go into the village each day, bring drums and let the kids have some fun. And I decided, why not? I've never worked in a war zone. Might as well go. <laughs> so, so I brought these tambourines turned out they didn't know I didn't know the Albanian Kosovars music is the most important thing to their culture and the drums I play are the indigenous drums of their culture and the rhythms I play are the indigenous rhythms and the women and the girls are the drummers and the men and the boys dance 
So every time I would come into a village, I did this for four months every day, I would come into a village and I'd bring the drums out and these villages, there was nothing left in these villages. And I basically was bringing their culture back to the kids. And so I ended up doing trauma therapy, <laughs> even though I had no idea what I was doing. And every day I asked for them to send a psychologist out with me and they wouldn't. And by the time I came back, I thought, this is really interesting. I really love doing something like this. And that's when I decided to go to graduate school. Now, uh, some people would have gone directly into practice or picked up different modalities in terms of working with people, but you decided that you needed the professional training in order to go there. And I, I did listen to your other interview on the subject, and you emphasize very strongly the importance of that clinical training. For me, it was very important. And maybe it's because I have an engineer inside of me. I don't know. It's possible. But I felt it was very important for me to have a very good set of tools. I am very careful about scope of practice. And I think that that's something that may be missed somewhat these days. People are tending to work in areas that they're not really trained to work in. And I try not to do that. I try to be very clear about what my skill set is and what I can do and what I can't do. One of the things that impressed me when you were talking earlier was your approach to integrative therapy, in which you integrate the therapy that's being given by trained psychiatrists and integrate medical treatments. There are some people who reject those things as part of their approach. And I like that you're bringing all of these things together and recognizing them for the value that each one adds. It's very important. I tend to say these days that maybe in 15 years, gastroenterologists will be doing my work because of everything we know about the influence of the microbiome on all of the disorders that psychiatrists and psychologists have been working with all these years. So I'm very attentive to people working the microbiome and diet and exercise and socialization. Is that something that you incorporate into the work that you do as well? Well, I have clinicians that I can send people to, but it's one of the things that I ask people right off the bat when I'm doing an intake. What's their diet like? Are they on probiotics? Have they, especially if they're people with IBS and disorders that we know have a lot to do with the gut. But honestly, at this point, there's so much research on the gut-brain access. This is not woo-woo. <laughs> and it's pretty standard treatment at this point. So... And yet, there are a lot of people in my profession who aren't willing to go and really get trained and learn about how the body is influencing the things that are happening in their patients' minds. I had a teacher once who made the distinction. She talked about people who refer to conditions as psychosomatic, and she said that she preferred to refer to them as soma-significant because the physical experience is part of the reality. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. On the other hand, everything I just told you, you might be thinking that I would say physical experience is reality at its most basic level. What is exists, whether or not a mind is able to land in that with such fluidity and flexibility and resonance that it can actually experience that, that's the key to mental health. That's a very keen distinction to make and one that's, uh, I think, subtle for some people. Subtlety is good, don't you think? <laughs> it certainly can be. Can you tell me a little bit about where the philosophy behind the work that you're doing comes from? Whom do you study? Whom do you read? Whom do you follow in this field? So I started meditating at around 15. 
I've been practicing yogic and Buddhist meditation practices for over 40 years. Interesting. So this comes from a Buddhist practice for, you, for yourself? So I started out doing transcendental meditation, and I was uh, I learned the TM cities at the age of 19, and was very involved with Vedanta and the teachings of Patanjali essentially for until about the age of 26, and I was introduced to Buddhism at that time, and. I practiced both Buddhist meditation practices as well as the TM and TM city practices probably, I don't know, maybe till my mid-30s. At that point, I just moved more fully into the Buddhist methodologies. And so I would say at this point, Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist psychology is my home at this point. And of course, my book is a textbook on Buddhist psychology for clinicians. Right. And your, your book is not, it's not written for the popular audience. It's really written for an academic audience. Actually, it's written for a clinical audience. It is an academic scholarly book, but it's written for clinicians to be able to use. And it's for me, it was a necessity because I felt that what was written for the clinical community about mindfulness didn't really give them a sense of Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist practices as they are in their essential forms. And, you know, John Kabat-Zinn essentially took Buddhist practices and clinicized them. And that's what's been handed down mostly in the clinical world. So I just felt it was important for clinicians to know the roots of where these practices came from. And also the difficult concepts like emptiness and <laughs> nature of mind and all the things that Buddhist philosophy has to offer. Have you reframed them in a more of a secular way then? Not at all. So they're definitely still still attached to the spiritual dimensions of Buddhism. You know, this is such an interesting question, David. I, I encourage people to read Stephen Batchelor's last two books because what he does is he really kind of teases apart who the Buddha was as a historical figure from what he teaches in the Pali texts. And in fact, you know, Sakyamuni or Gautama was a radical, really. And he was a cognition. He was really interested in mind. And anytime anyone asked him, and it's recorded in the Pali texts, anytime anyone asked him any esoteric questions about past lives or about the eternal soul or this or that, he would just say, you know, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> I'm only interested in the causes of suffering and the way to cessate suffering. And he looked carefully at his own mind to see the causes of suffering. And the Buddhist teachings are essentially that. Now, Buddhism went a lot of places after the death of the Buddha, and it morphed into other kinds of systems because it sort of embraced Shaivite techniques and other kinds of things. So wherever Buddhism went, it became other things, including a religion. But the Buddha was not interested in a religion. He had a community who were practicing together. And so to me, the idea of secular Buddhism, it's kind of an oxymoron because the Buddha didn't create a religion and his teachings were a philosophy of mind. 
That's interesting. I like the way that you've come to that. And you're getting back to to the core of the original teachings of the prophet behind the philosophy and spirituality that have evolved over the years. Yeah, he was a great arguer. Sometimes I think he was Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, basically, that the, the polytexts are just him essentially arguing in the way that the rabbis used to argue. You know, they were very much in terms of analyzing, analyzing, analyzing. And Buddhism is an analytical philosophy, and it's very practical. I love it when you get back down to the core, the place where the spiritual leaders were actually discussing these concepts, and push away all of the trappings that religion has put on top of them. You get to something very fundamental that is very similar across all of these different faiths. I agree, because we all have human minds, and so... Human minds tend to experience the nature of reality in a similar way. And that essence of compassion and wisdom is global across all of the religions. And it sounds like this is something that you integrate into the, the work that you do right now. But come, people come to you probably with, with a secular background, a secular expectation from the work that you're doing. I'm curious how you how you integrate these teachings w without crossing that line for people who might either have a strong religious faith or might possibly have a strong atheistic faith or lack of religious faith. So the truth is there's there is never a reason for me to mention Buddhism unless somebody has come to me and that's the container within which they want me to work with them. Because as I said, this is a philosophy of mind. It's a science of the way the mind and body work. And ASI obviously doesn't have anything to do with Buddhism. So the container of Buddhism is not something that I bring to the work unless, of course, that's a frame in which somebody wishes to work within. I can work with anybody in the frame that they're in. What is the difference? Sometimes when people ask me this question, I like to say to them, my friends who are in quantum, the, they're quantum computation people. For all of you engineers, you all know what that is. I've had some of them say to me, you know what you really are. I'm like, no, tell me what I really am. They said, well, you know, when you walk across the room, there's a set of information that you are that's actually walking across the room. You, you aren't walking across the room. The information that you are is walking across the room and inhabiting the atoms and molecules and this and that. When I think of that level of reality, that I am just information, to me that is nothing more than what the Buddha ever said. If I could awaken and experience that level of reality, I know that I would never experience hatred ever again. I would never experience aversion ever again because I would know that I, what I am at such a globally basic level. And there is nothing in this manifest world that is anything other, really, than information, than the information that it is. Are you smiling? I am indeed. I'm smiling huge. <laughs> <laughs> now you know I like working with engineers and scientists. <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm curious, you've, you've taken your practice to the place where it is right now. Where are you planning on taking it next? You've published this book, and you clearly have an outreach to the individuals that you're working with. I'm curious how you're planning on expanding that or what you're thinking about next. Well, I'm, I'm working with a group of other clinicians, actually. I'm formulating a think tank, which may or may not occur. We shall see. But the waking into innate embodied well-being is a way of describing 
a kind of work that I and several others are actually introducing into the clinical world at this point. And it is a way of working that is, is, is integrative, but it's also very doable because it includes methodologies that are easy to do and can be and are being used across the board. And so that is where I'm applying my efforts at this point to be able to increase either research into these methodologies, actual clinical research into them, and also to come up with terms. There really isn't a language to describe this. You've heard me talk about it in a what I consider a, a kind of rough way. Mm -hmm. And every place that you used a term that I wasn't familiar with or that I thought my listeners might need to find, we've had to dive into that, and it's, it's created yet another little whirlpool in the discussion. Yes. So this is where my efforts are going at this point, to be a hub around which some kind of standardization could occur so that we can actually start to talk about this in the wider medical model. Fascinating, fascinating. And I know my listeners are going to want to find out more about this and maybe find out how they can become involved. How can people find you online and find more information about what you're doing? Well, that's easy. It's just my name, lisadalemiller.com. Everything is there. I am a Dharma teacher as well. All my Dharma talks, I always upload, I edit them and upload them onto iTunes as well as on my website. So they're all up there for free. Some of my meditation practices. In 2007, I uploaded a mindfulness of breath meditation for beginners and a loving kindness practice. And I think they're the most popular, their podcasts on iTunes, I think they're the most popular practices still on iTunes, which I love because the Buddhist teachings are supposed to be given for free and I've never made a cent off of any of them. So. <laughs> That's beautiful. And I'm sure people are going to want to go and find all the information. Thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing all of this, this wonderful wisdom and perspective with my, my listeners. Well, it was a joy. And thank you so much for inviting me. And it was a, it's just great to speak with you, David. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>